together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says.
Good morning and welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. Um, in the midst of what ended up being a crazy week, uh, it's our prayer this morning that you would have a life-changing experience with the living God, that you would find peace and rest in this space. If you would please stand with me now for the call to worship, which is taken from Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There is no end to his greatness. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your power. All your works praise you, Lord, and your faithful servants bless you. They make known the glory of your kingdom and speak of your power. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's join together now in worshiping our great God. So before we um, sing this song, I just have a random question. Is anybody here that's never been to Seven Hills before? Raise your hand if you've never been here. Y'all see these people? In the darkness, find them afterwards. Love on them. Welcome them. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having a first myself this morning. I'm wearing some in-ear pieces in my ears. So if I make weird faces, y'all just forgive me. Um, but... I was thinking about the fact that for some people who maybe walk in a church for the first time, it's the first time that they've heard worship. They've heard people singing not for the tune and the, you know, the, the jive or whatever, but they're singing because there's someone that's actually listening and someone who is waiting to hear this sound coming up from his people. And this song we're going to start with today, someone on the band said, yeah, I think, that was, I think they were playing that when I was in a cradle in the nursery. Um, but it's blessed be your name. And we're going to be hearing about Job later on. And um, I love the phrase in this song that says, you know, blessed is your name in the land that's plentiful. Blessed is your name when I'm found in the desert place. And I bet that there are people in this building today. Some of you are in the plentiful and some of you are in the desert place. And he is still God in both of those places. And we have something to sing about in both of those places because he is with us. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Should be 
Southern Baptist Church, and um, you know, every Sunday it was uh, the exact same order of things. And um, you know, I've got children, and and that rote practice is, is really good for them to to just be um, just in a regimen. And um, our kids went to a Catholic school for a couple years, and there was even more ups and downs and extra prayers and words. Um, but there's so much order to it all. And, and I don't know if y'all know, but every Sunday the shepherds of this church think about what is the order? What are, what are we saying? What are we speaking? What, what verses are we, we reading in the service? And, um, and, and that order uh, brings us hopefully to a place where when the word is, is taught, that we're like a, like a field that's been tilled and ready to receive it. And um, the next song we're going to sing is How Deep the Father's Love. And um, Megan's going to sit here. By the way, did y'all know Megan was like a vocal major college? Just She didn't know her secrets were going to be told today. But, um, but anyway, but, but I asked her to start the song. And, um, 
If you don't know this song, just listen to the message of how, how deep the love of God is for you. For you, wherever you are, whatever you've done, it's vast and it covers everything. Y'all be blessed by this song.
service today, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, And scripture tells us that as we come to the table, we need to examine our hearts uh, to prepare for the meal that is before us. Uh, So I'm going to pray a prayer confession that's going to be on the screen behind me, and I invite you to follow along with me. Merciful God, in your gracious presence, we confess our sin and the sin of this world. Although Christ is among us as our peace, we are a people divided against ourselves. As we cling to the values of a broken world, the profit and pleasures we pursue lay waste the land and pollute the seas. The fears and jealousies that we harbor set neighbor against neighbor and nation against nation. We abuse your good gifts of imagination and freedom, of intellect and reason, and turn them into bonds of oppression. Lord, have mercy upon us. Heal and forgive us. Set us free to serve you in the world as agents of your reconciling love in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Christian, hear the good news. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Know that in Jesus... 
God embraces you, forgives you, and strengthens you to live a renewed life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that through faith in your son, Jesus, that we have access to you, our good father. Lord, thank you that that you strengthen us to live a renewed life, that you embrace us, that you forgive us. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that freedom, walk in that abundant life. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's join together now in worshiping God through the giving of his tithes and our offerings.
Let's pray. Merciful Father, we offer with joy and thanksgiving what you have first given us, ourselves, our time, and our possessions, signs of your gracious love. Receive them for the sake of him who offered himself for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, at this point, I want to invite up Randy and Morgan DeKlein to share about their work in Kenya. And while they're making their way up, I wanted to remind you that Women's Night is tonight um, at Elizabeth Rose's house. Elizabeth is right here in the middle with her hand up. Uh, from 7.30 to 9, her address and phone number are on the screen. And if you have any questions about what's going on tonight, you can contact Elizabeth. And now the declines about their work in Africa. Are we on? Very good. Good morning, Seven Hills. It's great to be back with you this morning. Uh, many of you would not know this, but some of you, I think, would, that, that we were members of Seven Hills back in the early years of our marriage. But now we're serving as missionaries in Africa. So we're so thankful. It's a privilege to be back with you this morning um, to talk a little bit more about our work in Kenya, as well as to thank each of you at Seven Hills for your partnership in our ministry. So we're currently serving on the field with an organization named Africa Inland Mission. Uh, Africa Inland Mission has been at work in Africa for over 120 years. Uh, currently today it has over 1,000 missionaries serving on the continent of Africa, working to plant churches among the unreached. Um, we're currently serving at a place in Kijabe, Kenya. Our family lives in Kijabe, Kenya where we work to serve in a support role by educating the children of missionary families at a place called RVA, Rift Valley Academy. RVA is a K through 12 Christian school and our students come from all over the world. Our student body is very diverse. It boasts over 30 different nationalities among our student body, as well as over 80 different mission agencies. Most missionary kids when they're young are homeschooled but as they, they get older, they're seeking more opportunities to play sports, join band and choir, and even to take art and pottery classes. So RVA's boarding program begins in their middle and high school years. RVA operates on a year-round schedule, which means students travel from across the continent of Africa to study at RVA for three months at a time before re returning to their families on the mission field for one month at a time. The mission statement at our school at RVA is to educate and disciple students toward their potential in Christ, thereby enabling their families to serve on the mission field. So what exactly does that look like? How is the decline family involved with the mission statement at RVA? Well, to the end of educating, my role has been to teach 10th grade English and AP English for the last two years, and I've loved getting to know my students through class discussions and through their writing. For example, on the right, you see one of my students, 10th grade students from this past year. His name is Callum. Callum would say that his home country is Canada because that's what his passport says. But really, he's been born and raised in South Sudan on the mission field with his family where he serves, where his family serves. This past year, he wrote one of the most compelling essays that I've ever read about being awoken with his family in the middle of the night to grenade explosions on their compound. And he talked about his transition to manhood 
uh, in having to help his mother and his younger siblings to the airstrip for an emergency air evacuation and finding out that his father was staying behind to help others. So part two of RVA's mission <coughs> is discipling students toward their potential in Christ. And discipleship really starts with building relationships. And since RVA is a boarding school, there are lots of opportunities to build relationships with students outside of the classroom. Um, sometimes that happens in my role in student health. For others, it's as coaches or dorm parents. And one of the ways that we enjoy connecting with students as a family is on cafeteria duty each week. This is Randy with some middle school boys. We also enjoy having students over to our home. Nearly every weekend we have students over for a bonfire or game night, dessert night, a puzzle tournament. So this is me hosting some girls for a high school game night. And in terms of more formal discipleship opportunities, we also mentor students one-on-one. -on -one. We teach Sunday school and lead Bible studies, pictured on the left there. One of our favorite activities this spring was when we invited students who maybe had some doubts about Christianity or some questions to come over for a series of Sunday afternoon faith conversations. And we just invited them over for popcorn and hot cocoa and to wrestle with some of the hard questions about Christianity like, why does God allow suffering, and why are Christians such hypocrites sometimes, and why does Christianity have so many rules? And as we told the students, we don't have all the answers, but we do just want to provide a safe place to be able to, to ask these hard questions about faith. Um, part three of RVA's mission is enabling families to serve. And so pictured here, you see the Gilmore family. That's Braden and the center who just graduated from Calvin. And his parents, Tim and Chris Gilmore, who have been serving as missionaries in Tanzania for 23 years, carrying out Bible translation work. And um, all three of their students, or of their children, graduated from RVA. They started out homeschooling in Tanzania, but eventually went to RVA to have more opportunities in high school. And so that's really why RVA exists, is to help support missionary families like the Gilmores to be able to carry out their ministry of Bible translation without having to compromise on their kids' education. And so we love being part of the ministry at RVA because it's really a twofold investment in missions. Not only do we get to help support missionary families like the Gilmores in their work in Africa, we also get to invest in their children, uh, students like Braden, and we know that many of those children will eventually become missionaries themselves. So in this photo, you see Braden actually in the pilot seat. This was during an aviation interim trip at RVA. Braden is now at Calvin University this fall studying engineering with dreams of eventually becoming a missionary pilot and returning to Africa. And so we love the fact that as we are supporting missionary families like the Gilmores, we are also getting to pour into students like Braden. And in that regard, we have a small role in helping to train the next generation of missionaries in Africa. So that is our ministry in a nutshell. If you are interested in learning more about it, we'll be down at the front entrance after church today. We'd love to connect with you. We're also happy to entertain you with stories about living in Africa. We can tell you what it's like to have monkeys trying to sneak into our kitchen and steal bananas, or what it's like to have baboons on campus who are very adept at opening front doors and surprising people that way. Um, we also have a bowl of Kenyan candy, so if you'd like to come down front and try a piece of that, you're welcome to. Uh, once again, we would just like 
to say thank you to all of you for your support and for your partnership in our ministry in Kenya. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you all. Um, you may or may not be aware, but Katie Fitzsimmons transitioned off of the church staff at the beginning of the summer. Uh, and she and Kevin are still a vital part of the Seven Hills Fellowship community, and we want to thank them for their eight years of service here at our church. Uh, so next Sunday, immediately after the service, we're going to have a reception uh, with coffee and desserts um, to thank Kevin and Katie for the ways that God has used them in the life of this church. Um, at this point, I want to invite children's ministry, to, uh, grades first through fifth grade, to go up. You're released in children's ministry, and I invite you to greet one another. You are not hidden. There's never been a moment you were forgotten. You are not hopeless Though you have been broken Your innocence stolen I hear you whisper underneath your breath I hear your SOS, your SOS There is no distance I cannot be covered over and over You're not defenseless I'll be a shelter, I'll be your armor
so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, 
Is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals this devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness. So you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering. And they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day, but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. Just kind of 
weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. All right, if you missed the beginning of that, this is a series uh, of videos from the Bible Project. And uh, we put the, those links to those uh, videos on our website and also on the 7 and 7 for you to check out. It's a great resource for you. I would recommend all of, almost all of the website has amazing videos that give you broad outlines of different books. But these three on the Wisdom series are really, really excellent. And uh, today, as, as uh, you can tell, we are going to cover the book of Job. And we're in a series now called A Life Well Lived. So how do we apply God's wisdom literature to your everyday life? And as we discuss Job, the real question is, how do we live well in the midst of suffering? Um, how, the way that Christians approach suffering, if you think about it, is one of the most powerful ways that God uh, calls us to be a witness to this lost and hurting world that we live in. And so it's a, it's a real question that we need to answer. Um, this particular book is very mysterious. Uh, it's one of the oldest books of the Bible. We don't really know where, I mean, there's, a, there's things about where it takes place and when the people that are in it are not Israelites. It could predate, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the Jewish people in the way that we know. We think it was probably written around the time of Solomon, and it's an incredibly dense beautiful book of Hebrew poetry, uh, but it addresses some very difficult questions. Uh, there's an opening scene in, within the heavenly realms, as you saw in the video, where uh, the angels are coming before the Lord, the sons of God, and they're, they're, they're talking about where they've been, and, and God has this conversation with Satan. So all of these things are very mysterious, and we certainly don't have time to unpack all of that today in the short amount of time we have this morning. But what we do have time to look at is explore why, in God's wisdom, did he place this book in the canon of Scripture? Why is it here? Uh, what are we going to learn from it? And it seeks to address the question of why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? 
Uh, let me pray, and we'll dive in today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the book of Job, and I pray, God, that you would teach us this morning by your word and by your spirit so that we may live well in the midst of suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we take a look at this, at this book, we do want to kind of back up a little bit, and, and there's three points that I'm going to have today. The first of these points that I want to point out if you're taking notes today is that God is not formulaic or simplistic. God is not formulaic or simplistic. Now let me unpack that a little bit. As we talk about wisdom literature, it describes things, especially in the book of Proverbs, it describes things that are generally true. In fact, if, you, if you're trying to quote the promises of God and you pull something out of Proverbs and lay it down as if it's a promise, you might be misquoting that out of context because these are things that generally apply, but they're not always the case. Uh, Proverbs 12, 13 says this, an evil man is ensnared by transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. We would all say generally we see that happen, right? Uh, but are there times you can think of where that may not be the case? Uh, so these are things that are generally true, and that if we live by this wisdom, we will see a benefit from that. We see applied wisdom like this uh, in the world today. Chick-fil-A, okay? We love using Chick-fil-A as an example of things. Chick-fil-A is a restaurant chain that is founded in some ways on the wisdom of God. I mean, think about it. They're a company that operates on good principles to have a clean restaurant to treat employees and customers well, with kindness, with integrity, to do things with excellence, to do it at a fair price. These are all general wisdom principles that they're applying uh, in their business, and it, and it works, right? It works, and it, they're incredibly successful at applying God's wisdom to business. And so we see these things operating. These are things that are generally true. Um, Proverbs also teaches us that sometimes sin has, a con has the consequences built in. It's kind of baked into the pie. Some sins, God's not sitting there waiting to, to punish you for. The sin is kind of baked in. If you are a glutton and you eat too much regularly, you might gain weight. That's probably, right? That's, that's, it's, it's kind of baked into the pie of the particular sin. If I'm a glutton, I know a lot of you are like, yes, Jeff, we see you, um, that it's baked in that I'm going to gain weight if I eat too much. And so sometimes, and we, and we see this idea within the Proverbs as well, self-indulgence does lead to being overweight. But now we also know sometimes it doesn't, right? There are certain people who have that amazing metabolism, the rest of us hate you, um, where you can eat whatever you want and you can be really gluttonous and you have no consequence whatsoever. So, so it's not always the case, even though it is generally true. We also can think that God operates formulaically or simplistically because sometimes he seems to do that, especially in the Old Testament. And what I mean by a formula is like A plus B equals C. There is cause and there is effect. And then if you, God says, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. We see it happen in the Old Testament, especially as God is leading his people through the desert. There's a time when the people are grumbling against Moses and, and against God. And what happens? The earth like opens up and swallows like thousands of people. 
That's a cause and effect. A plus B equals C, right? We see it in Miriam when, she, when Moses uh, takes his second wife, and Miriam is, is speaking out against him, and God's like, that's probably not a good idea, and suddenly he strikes her with leprosy. Uh, that's pretty immediate consequence for the way that you're behaving. And so sometimes God appears, or he does, act in a way that seems very formulaic and very simple. Hey, if you do bad, then God is going to punish you. And it can seem to be that way. Now, we see this simplistic view of suffering continue to move down. Uh, It's wrong for us to apply this in all situations, but we see that this attitude, and we can start to think that this is the way God works all the time. And it was that way in Christ's time, and it's that way even today. We can view God in this way. Like in Christ's time, there was a moment where Jesus was walking with his disciples, and it's recorded in John chapter 9, and we're going to read that. He said, one of the disciples, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Here they are walking. They see a man clearly who's been blind from birth. Somebody had to sin in order for this to be happening. That attitude is alive and well now much, you know, 1,500 years after Job has been written. And they have this book of the Bible, and yet they still fail to apply it. And we can say, well, that may be true of them, but we don't do that in today's world. I don't know if you remember when uh, Hurricane Katrina was coming, bearing down on the city of New Orleans. We all see this picture of a Category 5 hurricane that takes up almost the entire Gulf of Mexico, getting ready to strike New Orleans. And what happened? Over and over again, you would hear, if you, if you had those, the TV channels that have all the preachers on there, they would start saying, you know, New Orleans is kind of a wicked city. And probably this is happening because of the wickedness of that place. I heard that over and over again from multiple sources when that happened, which shows that this attitude that we have, somebody must have sinned in order for this to happen. Now, it's weird. They don't say that when the hurricane's getting ready to hit Jacksonville or somewhere else. But in that moment in time, it seems to fit the situation. Now, the covenant of works is also a little formulaic. The covenant of works, if you don't know, this was the covenant that God had with Adam. And he said, if you are obedient, you will enter into eternal life uh, in in a state of glory with me. Now, we know Adam and Eve sinned and did not enter into that. They did not fulfill the covenant of works. You see the covenant of works reflected in this verse in Matthew 5, 48. He says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The covenant of works states that we can have a relationship with God if we are like him, if we're perfect in every way. Now, there's a pretty serious problem with that. We are not perfect. Because of the sinful nature that we have, we are incapable of fulfilling this covenant of works. And we intrinsically know this. We intrinsically know as people, whether you're a believer or not, if you believe in God, and maybe you're not a Christ follower, maybe you don't have a personal relationship with him, but you believe there is a God, you know that you're supposed to be good, that there's a way that you need to earn it. I I was reading a book, a a fantasy novel by Piers Anthony. He was a famous uh, sci-fi and fantasy writer when I was younger. 
And there was a story that he wrote in a book called On a Pale Horse where the, the specter of death would come and claim a soul right at the time they died. And it was fascinating the way that he did it. He said that when, when someone was about to die, death would pull up, you know, in his, in his cool car and uh, come out and he had the sickle and everything and the hood and, and he would take the soul. And when the soul came out, he would put it in a little capsule. And if they were righteous, the capsule would float up into heaven and they would be, have eternal life in heaven. And if they were wicked, the capsule would sink down into the earth and they would go to hell. And if it kind of hung out right in the middle, then they, they were perfectly balanced and they went to purgatory. Okay? Now that's the way this fantasy novel was written. That is not good theology, by the way. But I want to point out that that idea is appealing to us. Right? It's appealing because we kind of intrinsically know there's a standard that we have to fulfill. An A plus B equals C. If I am righteous, if I am perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect, then what will happen? I will get to be in the presence of God. Now, Martin Luther pointed this out back during the Reformation. He said that one of the main reasons God wrote the Old Testament law, yes, it reflects his character. Yes, as a believer, we are supposed to try to reflect the character of God by obeying uh, the moral law. But he said that the main reason for it was as a tutor to lead us to Christ. That we would see the Ten Commandments and we would say, I am undone. I can't do this on my own. And it's because of the sin nature that we have that we would know we are incapable of coming and being perfect and entering into the presence of God on our own. That we need a Savior. Um, we see this reflected in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. You see, the gospel is not formulaic. The gospel doesn't say be perfect as God requires and you're going to be in the presence of God. He says be perfect and you can't be, but Jesus is perfect on your behalf and therefore you will enter in to the presence of God. Because the covenant of works is still in effect right now. The beauty for the believer is that Jesus fulfills the covenant of works on our behalf so that we can enter in to the presence of God. Now, Job, he, he doesn't fit this formula either. Uh, it, the, the video made that clear. Uh, but in that first two chapters, we see very clearly that Job has done nothing wrong to deserve what is happening to him. There's no simplistic sin formula that has caused this calamity to fall upon him. Listen to Job chapter 1. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God is declaring that Job is righteous and does not deserve uh, what we see later happening to him. God then allows unimaginable suffering to fall upon Job. He loses all of his possessions. All of his children are killed. It is a devastating loss. And yet in all of this, Job does not sin. And so again, part of what this book is teaching us is that God does not operate formulaically or simplistically. The second thing I want to point out is that God does not relate to us transactionally. God does not relate to us transactionally. When Satan is accusing Job 
as he's having his conversation with God, um, he says this, Satan answered the Lord and said, does not Job fear God, fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan is saying, of course Job is following you. He, it, the, the scripture describes Job is the richest man in this area of the world. He has thousands of cattle and sheep and donkeys. He has children. He is incredibly blessed. And so he, he says, of course he loves you. You have made him wealthy and rich and healthy. You take all of those things away, and he will curse you. This idea of a transactional relationship with God enters into our lives today as well. Um, we see this happening uh, in Scripture, and we see it happening in our own lives. In Scripture, I, I was immediately thought of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? So, the younger son takes his, his inheritance, he goes, he squanders it on prostitutes, on wild living. He comes back, and his father is so overjoyed to see him that he has a party. But the, the older brother doesn't want doesn't to go to the party. He doesn't want to celebrate his younger brother. He's angry, and he's mad. And when his father confronts him, the older brother says, I've slaved for you, and you don't give me even a goat for me and my friends. Right? The older brother is saying, I am working hard for your stuff. I want a piece of what you have. And yet, you're stingy and you're not sharing with me. The older brother still has this transactional kind of attitude. If I obey and if I do the right things, things are going to go well with me. And the message for us is that even as believers, we can manipulate God in a transactional kind of relationship. Hey, God, haven't I served you? Haven't I been faithful? And yet you, helped, you, you allowed me to get fired or you allowed me to get kicked out of school or you have not given me the spouse that I have been praying for. And yet I have done my share of the bargain. I have held up my side. We see this, especially today, as people get angry with God, usually through some part of life that's incredibly painful or incredibly disappointing. And yet we say to God, I have loved you and I have obeyed you. Why did you let this happen? Why did you help cause my relationship to fail? We can also come to believe through these situations that God is not good, that maybe uh, he just isn't for us, that maybe he's not good at all, and that anger can result from this situation. Um, Job rejects this idea of a transactional relationship with God at the end of ch chapter 2 uh, when his wife says to Job, why are you holding on to your integrity? You need to curse God and die. What is Job's reaction to her? He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Another word for that evil is calamity. Shall we not re receive bad things from God? And is he here just to be like Santa Claus or just to give us the good things? 
Or is, is life going to throw us a lot of different curves? He's saying, we are not here to enter into this transactionally. I take what the Lord is going to give me. And so God doesn't relate to us transactionally and simplistically, and he doesn't relate to us um, in either of those two ways. So what is the message of Job, and what is he saying to us? I believe that God is writing a story. This is point number three. God is writing a story for our good and for his glory. He is writing a story for our good and for his glory. As the video showed, and if you read the book, which I recommend everybody do this, uh, it's an amazing book, God is operating on complexities that we can't possibly understand. Job argues with his friends for over 30 chapters, and they go through all of these complex arguments. There's a lot of bad theology in those arguments. There's a lot of great things in those arguments, so it's worth reading and taking the time to go in there as, as we explore this. And Job is, though, arguing with God and saying, I, need, I want you to give me an account. Like, tell me why you have done this to me. And so finally God does. And he appears in a whirlwind. But what he says is so interesting. You know, Jesus rarely answered the questions that anyone asked him. He usually answered their question with a question. And God uses the same methodology as he approaches Job. He doesn't ever really answer his question of why Job went through the suffering that he did. But he does start to describe who he is and the complexities of life that he is dealing with. He starts out in chapter 37, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Can you imagine the picture that he shows? It's beautiful, the poetic language that he uses. But when he says, when I was laying the cornerstone of the earth and putting the foundations and the morning stars were singing together and all the heavenly host was singing for joy, were you there? Do you understand what I'm dealing with and what I'm capable of and what is going on? Now, we, we don't have to stop there. He goes on for two or three chapters describing these amazing things. He said, were you there when I told the sea to stop right here and go no further and set the boundaries for the oceans? Were you there? Uh, do you know the pathway for the thunderbolts? You know, just this week, a couple people were killed from a lightning strike near the White House. I think standing near any politician puts your life at danger today. But... You know, God knows the pathway of the lightning bolts. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? And then he talks about that for several paragraphs. This is one of my favorites. Have you walked in the storehouses of the snow? Now, we don't, we don't believe that this is the way it is up there, right? We believe God is using poetic language to describe the complexities of what he does. We, we all studied science and cumulus nimbus clouds and the way hail forms and snow and all of this. But man, I hope it is like this. Like, I want to go and, and go in the storehouse of the snow. I think that would be super cool. But he is saying there are things and complexities that you can't possibly understand. Have you seen the gates of death? Do you know where light dwells? 
None of those things are a mystery to God. And I could go on and on and on with examples that he gives. And again, I encourage you to read it. I love when I start feeling sorry for myself to go read the last three chapters of Job and just listen to God's response. It always kind of recenters me in humility on who God is in his power. And you see, upon reading all of this, I really feel like God does use a formula for our lives in some ways. It still is kind of A plus B equals C. It's just the thing is, his formula is so much more complicated than ours. He plugs eternity into every formula. That is the thing that he understands that we fail to do. He can take eternity and plug it in to whatever we're dealing with and the complexities of our lives and the suffering that we experience. And he understands how 3,000 years from now, when you're in his presence, how that is bearing fruit in your life later on. And that's the kind of formula that we cannot comprehend, that incredibly complicated formula. You see, by faith, we have to trust that he is good towards us, that he has our best interest at heart. We have plenty of verses that talk about this in the New Testament, especially Romans chapter 8. Have you ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? Corey Ten Boom was an author. Uh, her and her family lived in a small town in the Netherlands, and um, they were watchmakers. Corey Ten Boom was actually the first female Dutch watchmaker to get a license from, uh, from the state. And they had a great ministry there. They really lived out their faith as a family. Uh, she, they fixed watches. She, they gave to the poor. They were very active in their community. And uh, she even started like a youth ministry and invested in young women before youth ministry was a thing and uh, really poured into the lives of these young women. And if that was all she did, that would be great. That would be enough, right? That's a life well lived. But then the Nazis invaded invaded Holland and uh, the Netherlands, and she and her family became part of the Dutch underground. And they actually even built a room in their house that was secret, and there's a book about it called The Hiding Place where she goes into this. And uh, Jews would come to them, and they felt called to rescue them and be a part of rescuing them from the Nazi oppression. And it's, it's estimated uh, that they saved up to 800 Jews came through their house in the time that they were a part of the Dutch underground. Now, that's pretty amazing in and of itself, except that eventually they did get caught, and they got captured, and she, her whole family was arrested, and everyone was released except for she and her father and her sister, Betsy. And her father ended up dying 10 days into captivity. She and Betsy went to uh, a couple of different camps, but they ended up in Ravensbrück concentration camp and suffered unimaginable things. Uh, if you've seen real footage of what it was like to live in a concentration camp, we can't imagine the horrors that she experienced. Um, her sister, Betsy, died 14 days before Corey was released. And she was released, they think, on a, on a clerical error, and uh, they actually killed everyone in her age range just shortly after she was released. 
Now, Corey moved back to her town, and she developed a home for people who had suffered during the war. And after the war, she wrote books, and she traveled all over the world. She traveled all to over 60 countries, sharing her story, sharing the gospel, and had an incredible impact. At a couple of different times, she actually was confronted with guards who worked at Ravensbrook, and one of them had been especially cruel to her sister, Betsy, and she forgave him on the spot. Now think about the impact that, that has and her writing about it and the way that it, she has blessed Christians for the last 50 years who've just read her books, even though she's no longer with us. We read about her story and are inspired, and we can say, wow, maybe I can see a little bit of why God allowed you to go through these horrible things so that we can see, as he pulls back the curtain, how much God's used her pain and her suffering to bless us. And it's just like when Jesus and the disciples saw the man born blind. What was Jesus' answer when the disciples said, who sinned? Did, she, did this, this man sin or his parents? And Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, God displayed his power in Corey. But here's the thing. We can see so much of that and what he did. But did you know, and it wasn't until I did research on her that I saw this last part. You remember how I said God, he punches eternity into the equation that we can't see. In 1978, Corey was living in the United States by this time. She had two strokes that year. The first stroke made her unable to speak and the second stroke crippled her. And she lived five more years in that state, unable to move, unable to take care of herself, and unable to communicate. Now, when you see Corey in heaven, do you think she's going to say, let me tell you, those last five years... God is so unjust. Or do you think she's probably going to testify to us about what she learned, about what God was doing in her and in her heart, even at a time of unimaginable suffering for us? Because we don't plug eternity into the equation. We can't comprehend what that was like for her. But one day she'll be able to tell us. She'll be able to share with us the way that God worked even in the midst of this distress. In closing, let me say this. In the middle of Job's distress, in chapter 16, he cries out for a mediator. He said he wishes that there was someone who could intervene between him and God, that there was a witness in heaven that would argue the case of a man with God as the Son of Man does with his neighbor. Job really wanted a mediator. And I think it's so interesting that God would not let Satan totally destroy Job. And yet, he did totally destroy his son. He poured out his wrath and his anger that we deserve on his only son whom he loved so that his son could be that mediator for us. Because now... When we suffer now, when we face trials now, 
when we think we can say, I need a mediator and I can cry out to the one who sits at the right hand of God right now interceding for me and for you. Romans 8 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we suffer and we doubt that God is good or that he loves us, we only have to look at Jesus to see how he suffered on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message of Job Lord, it is an incredibly beautiful book, and yet you teach us so much about your plans and the ways that you operate in the world that are so far beyond ours. We ask that you would continue, Lord, in the midst of our suffering to turn our eyes to you, to realize that you are not simplistic in the way that you deal with us, but Lord, that you are taking eternity and the life of your Son into account as you deal with us. We pray that it increases our faith. We pray that we would be strong in the midst of our suffering to bring you glory. And thank you, Lord, that even when we're not strong, that you hold us. That when we fail, you love us still. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We see this goodness of God also as we go to the Lord's table. uh, It's reflected in this, right? The Lord's table is a remembrance. It is many things, but one thing that it is, is it's a remembrance. When we look at the way that Jesus suffered and died on the cross, uh, he is saying, do this in remembrance of me. And it calls to mind what he did for us on, on, on our behalf. The fact that he went to Calvary for us and suffered what we deserve so that we could live the life that we live now because of his perfect sacrifice. I'm going to read the words of institution and give you a few more words. Elders are already in place getting the table ready as I do so. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is not the table of Seven Hills Fellowship, but this is the Lord's table and is open to everyone who's a member in good standing of a church that rightly proclaims the gospel. If you are not a believer today and you're here or you are involved in a sin that you are unwilling to lay down, we would request that you not partake in the, in the table. Because of the, the warnings, if you continue to read in this passage, there are warnings that say if you take the table in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so because of those warnings, we take those very seriously. We also uh, believe if you have a child who has not met with elders, and we have a process for that to meet with them and go through a communicants class, which we're going to offer another one this fall, that they also not come to the table until they've been through that process and have had a chance to meet with the elders. Um, 
But this is uh, the Lord's table. The way we do communion here, we have uh, wine and bread on uh, your left, and on your right we have juice and bread. We also have a gluten-free option that is available now. Um, Earlier in the service, we have prepared ourselves and we've confessed our sins together. Feel free to sit for a while if you want to sit for a while and contemplate and, again, preparing yourself and examining yourself before you go to the table. But when you are ready, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good.
We're going to sing a final song. If that's okay with you, Jeff. <laughs> We're going to sing the song as well. And um, certainly whether you're in Job's spot or you're in a better spot than him, or even one day when we're in heaven, you know, I can imagine singing this song in heaven where everything is perfect. It is well. Y'all sing with us.
receive now the benediction of the Lord, and as our tradition, you can put your arm around somebody next to you, you can raise your hands, you can just stand there, whatever you're comfortable with, as you hear this blessing of the Lord. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.